1 Thessalonians chapter 3. Finally, when we could stand it no longer, we decided to stay alone in Athens, and we sent Timothy to visit you. He is our brother and God's co-worker in proclaiming the good news of Christ. We sent him to strengthen you, to encourage you in your faith, and to keep you from being shaken by the troubles you were going through. But you know that we are destined for such troubles. Even while we were with you, we warned you that the troubles would soon come. And they did, as you well know. That is why, when I could bear it no longer, I sent Timothy to find out whether your faith was still strong. I was afraid that the tempter had gotten the best of you, and that our work had been useless. But now Timothy has just returned, bringing us good news about your faith and love. He reports that you always remember our visit with joy, and that you want to see us as much as we want to see you. So we have been greatly encouraged in the midst, in the midst of our troubles and suffering. Dear brothers and sisters, because you have remained strong in your faith, it gives us new life to know that you are standing firm in the Lord. How we thank God for you. Because of you, we have great joy as we enter God's presence. Night and day, we pray earnestly for you, asking God to let us see you again and fill the gaps in your faith. May God, our Father, and our Lord Jesus bring us to you very soon. And may the Lord make your love for one another and for all people grow and overflow, just as our love for you overflows. May he, as a result, make your heart strong, blameless, and holy as you stand before God our Father, when our Lord Jesus comes again with all his holy people. Amen. Good morning, Trinity Heights Church. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Eric Helvey. Uh, I'm an artist here in the city and specifically a painter. And on top of that, I've just come on staff at the church just about two and a half months ago now. My family and I have attended Trinity Heights for a little over three years. My wife, Megan, and I have two boys. Elliot uh, is 14 and graciously did the scripture reading for us this morning. And Reese is 11. We moved to New York back in 2009 when Elliot was just two years old and Reese didn't exist. <laughs> he arrived nine months later, right after we moved and was born uh, in a large tub of water right in the middle of our living room here in this Harlem apartment uh, where we still live currently. We moved to New York back then with the idea that I would become an artist and have a studio, make paintings, be represented by a gallery. And that's pretty much exactly what happened for the most part. Though I would say that uh, delivering a sermon on 1 Thessalonians chapter three was never part of the plan. And yet, uh, I would also say that thank God for pleasant surprises, as it really is a pleasure to be speaking this morning. So last week, Tim Kreber introduced us to the Thessalonians, not only as we see them in First Thessalonians, but also as we see them in the book of Acts, chapter 17, which serves as the backstory to Paul's letter. The story begins when Paul and his co-worker Silas, as wandering missionaries, travel to the Greek city of Thessalonica, and after just one month of telling the people there the good news about Jesus, 
a large number of Jewish and Greek people give their allegiance to Jesus and they form the first church community there. But trouble was brewing. Paul's announcement of the risen Jesus as the true Lord of the world led to suspicion. So the Christians in Thessalonica were eventually accused of defying Caesar, the Roman emperor, when they said that there is another king, Jesus. And this led to a persecution that got so intense that Paul and Silas had to flee the city. And this was painful for them because they loved the people there so much. And so 1 Thessalonians is Paul's attempt to reconnect with the Christians in Thessalonica after he got a report from Timothy that they were doing more than okay. They were actually flourishing despite this intense persecution. So when Paul writes his letter to the Thessalonians, which is considered to be the earliest of all the letters he wrote to the early church, He's most likely writing from Athens, which sits at a distance of a little over 300 miles to the south of Thessalonica. Now, by our standards, that may not seem like a great distance, but remember, Paul is writing at a time when the fastest mode of land transportation was the speed of a horse running at a full gallop. I did a little digging, and apparently cowboys riding on horseback only ever travel around 30 miles per day, which means that the journey from Thessalonica to Athens would take the best cowboy about 10 days. Uh, assuming Paul took a boat, well, th that's another matter. Who knows how long it would have taken ancient sailboats to travel that distance, though apparently according to goferry.com, the current ferry ride between the two cities takes about 30 hours. So all to say, there's a lot of physical space separating Paul from the Thessalonians as he's writing his letter to them. He knows they're being persecuted and yet he can't get to them. And, and it's this knowledge of their suffering mingled with the fear that they might abandon their faith due to persecution combined with the great distance that separates them, that informs his tone of longing to, to be with them. It's as if Paul feels the pain of the miles separating them when he writes, when I could bear it no longer, I sent Timothy to find out whether your faith was still strong. I was afraid that the tempter had gotten the best of you and that all of our work had been useless. And then Paul's tone changes mid-paragraph after he recounts Timothy's joyful return with the good news that the Thessalonians' faith and love are as strong as ever. Paul writes, saying of Timothy, he reports that you remember our visit with joy and that you want to see us just as much as we want to see you. Paul's tone shifts from one of fear and worry to one of joy and overwhelming love. We have been greatly comforted how we thank God for you and may the Lord make your love grow and overflow to each other and to everyone else just as our love overflows towards you. So Paul uses intense language to communicate a deep longing to be together despite the hardships and distance. And then Paul continues to use intense language to communicate 
overwhelming joy and overflowing love. And as I read in First Thessalonians chapter three, uh, a, a few times over, as I read it multiple times, I began to be reminded of some of my own letters that I wrote at the age of 17 to a girl who happened to be 8,874 miles away. The, these love letters that I wrote to her, like Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, also happened to use intense language to communicate deep longing and overwhelming, <laughs> overflowing love. And as we all know, all good letters have backstories. And the backstory to the letters I wrote uh, begins sometime in the mid-90s. I lived for most of my childhood in South Africa near the city of Durban in the coastal province of KwaZulu-Natal. I was raised by wandering missionary parents and growing up, we traveled a lot to other parts of Africa through Europe and occasionally back to the States for year-long furloughs so my parents could raise support and visit all of the churches across America that were already partnering with them. Usually during furlough, our family uh, would live in Eugene, Oregon. That was our home base. It was near my mother's side of the family. However, in 1999, when I was 14, my parents decided that they needed to be based in a more central Midwestern location. And so we found ourselves living in the city of Indianapolis, Indiana. For my freshman year of high school, I was enrolled in East Lawn Christian Academy, where I met a pretty girl named Megan. We were friends for most of that year, but after spending more time together after school in a driver's ed class, we fell in love and started officially dating in October of 1999, knowing full well that we only had three months together before I would travel with my family back to South Africa to live for the next three years. So we decided to wait for each other and date long distance with the hope that our relationship would survive. So these were the days before Skype and Zoom and FaceTime. All we had back then were glitchy webcams and email. And so Megan and I began to write each other lots and lots of emails. <laughs> and I'd like to share a few of those with you now. Uh, just a quick disclaimer, these emails, like Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, are jam-packed with longing and overwhelming love, but they also happen to be overflowing with cutesy teenage stuff, so bear with me. Monday, September 17th, 2001. Subject. Bye-bye. Hey, sweetie. It's almost six in the morning as I'm typing this. I leave at 6.30 to go to school, and then I'm off to leadership camp in Labrie. I'm going to miss you, frowny face. Please pray for us as we are on camp for this week, just for protection and that the camp will go smoothly. I love you, and I hope your week goes well. I played at the jam last night. It went pretty well. Well, I better go. I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you. And I love you. One for each day, I'm not going to be here. Sideways heart. Bye. Love, Eric. Bye, sweetie. Sideways heart. Smiley face. And then there's the picture 
that I attached of me waving goodbye. And here we have uh, Megan's reply a few days later. Wednesday, September 19th, 2001. Subject. Hey, sweetheart. Hey, wonderful. I don't really have much to say. I hope you're having an awesome time at camp. Monday night, we played a great volleyball game. We lost. He he. Doesn't sound that great, does it? Every volley lasted a long time. It was fun, but tiring. That game took two hours. We will beat them next time. <laughs> right now, everything here is normal. I love you with all my heart. Love, Megan. Smiley face emoji with the tongue sticking out. Oops, I meant to send this picture a long time ago. And then we have the picture of Megan levitating a heart with the words, I love you, Eric. Love, Megan. Smiley face. And finally, an excerpt from one last email from me to Megan sent uh, just a few months later. Saturday, November 10th, 2001. Subject, cozy and busy. Hey, sweetie. I just got back from Shelly Center. My dad, Judy, and I watched The Princess Diaries. I thought it was pretty good. Anyway, now I'm at home, cozy and in my jammies. I miss you so much it hurts. My heart right now thinking I can't be with you. I love you, Megan, with everything I have. Megan, I know we will make it. I'm going to walk out of that plane and you're going to be there waiting and we will hold each other knowing that the wait is over. Being so far from each other is finally over. I long for that day with every bit of me. Well, gotta run. As I said in my subject title, I'm cozy and busy, so I better get to work. I love you. Love, Eric. And there you have it, <laughs> a glimpse into the heart and the soul of 17-year-old me. And yes, the Megan in these letters is Megan, my current wife and the mother of our two children. We've been together since we started dating at the age of 15. And I have to say, it's very strange to think that our oldest son, Elliot, turns 15 this year. Things have come full circle, and yet sometimes it feels as if almost no time has passed at all. I find it funny that our lives as a family today, me, Megan, Elliot, and Reese, living and working alongside others, living in community with all of you, uh, processing pain and grief, frustration, beauty, and hope, all of the deepest aspects of life. Uh, all of this is strangely and somewhat ironically founded upon an enormous amount of intense teenage longing and with the emails as proof oftentimes cringeworthy words of overflowing love and when i think about paul's words to the thessalonians and understand that this is paul's earliest letter to the early church uh, i start to realize that there's something interesting going on here I guess for the sake of where I'm going with this, we could even say that this is a, a, a teenage Paul writing to a, a teenage church in the midst of a painful long distance relationship. And when you view things through this lens, Paul's intense words of longing and love start to make a great deal of sense. The early days of any relationship always feel shaky. Things always feel new and exciting, but tinged with an almost unbearable amount of uncertainty. Reading 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, you get a very real sense that all of Paul's worry and fear about 
the Thessalonians is based on the fact that he longs for them to stay in relationship with each other as the church and also with him as their friend and teacher and ultimately with Jesus as their Lord and King. And yet he's very aware. Paul understands deeply that things could go south at any moment. Any number of things could go wrong and the whole thing might come crashing down. Not to mention the ever-present and unpredictable elements of persecution, danger, risk, and death. When Megan and I were dating long distance, uh, anytime I would go surfing or, or work a day at the beach as a lifeguard, as I did back then, or travel out into the more rural, secluded areas of the South African bush, as we often did, I remember thinking that every time I did something like that, I was taking uh, an, an enormous risk. There was just too much at stake. What if something went wrong and all of our hopes of being reunited were dashed? What if we never saw each other again? The big question that seems to linger in the air for Paul and the Thessalonians is exactly this. What if something goes wrong? What if we never see each other again? It's a very human question and an honest concern because we long to be together and we mourn the loss of those that we love. Paul acknowledges the full range of human emotions throughout chapter three. And yet at the end of the chapter, we see him do something very interesting. In one fell swoop, Paul gathers up all of the emotions of the chapter, the longing, the uncertainty, the pain and suffering, the overflowing love, and roots all of it in a cosmic hope bigger than the sum of all human feeling. As he writes, he seems to be reminding himself, as well as the Thessalonians, of the day when they will all be reunited and stand together before God. Going back to my earlier email, the one titled Cozy and Busy, I end the email by saying, Megan, I know we will make it. I'm going to walk out of that plane and you're going to be there waiting and we will hold each other knowing that the wait is over. Being so far from each other is finally over. I long for that day with every bit of me. It's this kind of idea that seems to be in the back of Paul's mind when he writes at the end of chapter three, may God himself, our father and our Lord Jesus make it possible for us to come to you very soon. And may the Lord make your love grow and overflow to each other and to everyone else, just as our love overflows toward you. As a result, Christ will make your heart strong, blameless, and holy when you stand before God our Father on the day when our Lord Jesus comes with all of those who belong to him. So when Paul writes, overwhelming, overflowing words of love and uses intense words of longing, it's as if he's using language to bolster an early relationship, to jumpstart something that even though in the present seems to be in its awkward adolescent stage, has all of the potential to mature and grow into something with the power to influence and shape reality at its very core. I was talking to my son, Elliot, the other day, and I told him about a time in South Africa when an older friend of my dad's heard about the long distance relationship between Megan and I and said, 
long distance relationships never work. I remember thinking for a moment that, that he was probably right. And maybe Megan and I should call it quits. Luckily, we never did. We just kept writing emails and our relationship continued and grew out of those letters. But I told Elliot that when that man said that to me, it sowed a brief seed of doubt. And looking back on it now, had that seed been given the chance to grow, then Elliot, Reese, our family, and our entire current reality here in the city would not exist. There must have been so many moments like that for the Thessalonians, moments of doubt, moments of intense hardship when they could have called it quits. Even now, I think it's so easy to think of the Thessalonians as a poor bunch of unfortunate individuals who fell on hard times. And so we adopt a kind of uh, flippant sucks to be them mentality. But if this becomes the dominant idea, then we overlook the fact that the only reason we as the church exist today in large part is because of them and the choices they made. We are the great, 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 great grandchildren of the gospel. And the Thessalonians are our ancestors. We are able to declare our allegiance to King Jesus because they did first. So when we read 1 Thessalonians, we aren't just reading any old letter, but rather, rather we are reading some of the first words of love that have formed and shaped our current reality. We're reading a love letter, one that fueled the heart of the early church.